Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua. Some of you had your finger there in Galatians. We're going to be in Joshua this morning. You can start there at the beginning of this book, Joshua chapter 1. As we do this, I'd like to kind of set the stage a little bit. We have multiple groups of people here this morning. And that's obvious because we all came in separate cars or from separate places, maybe even from separate ends or areas of town. And it can be difficult when you're looking at a few hundred people or a couple hundred people to address kind of everyone at one time. But as we do this, I'm praying that God will give me wisdom in doing this because it can be tricky to do. And I was thinking about it and really how God's people throughout Scripture have worked as well. We're going to be at a particular moment in the life of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. As we track through that history, it's really quite a history. Not too long before this, in Exodus chapter 32, Moses had been up on the mountain. Exodus 20, he receives the Ten Commandments. It's this glorious moment. I mean, God tells us it's unlike any other moment. A prophet meets with God, and God tells us Moses is unlike any other prophet because Moses met with God face to face. And so Moses is having this amazingly spiritually intimate yet intimidating moment with the creator of the universe. And the people are down in the valley, bored, partying. They construct a calf. Moses comes down, he's brokenhearted over what he sees. And he cries out in this moment, who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. And some of the people come, but all do not. And in that moment, the Levites mete out God's judgment on those who have turned from faith in the true God. Thank God that he does not deal with us in similar measure today. You track on a little bit further, you come to Numbers chapter 11. Moses is still dealing with the same nation, the same group of people, some two million people, but among those two million, there are lots of different groups in that two million. And Numbers 11 tells us the people are complaining. Now, it's a host of people complaining, but Moses also tells us within the host, there is a group of what he calls rabble that are stirring up the host to complain. And Moses in this moment says, oh God, would you kill me rather than make me keep dealing with these people. And again, I'm struck by the mercy of God because God does not kill Moses. He sends him help instead. In the end of Numbers 11, God sends 70 elders, men full of the spirit. And God takes some of the spirit that has been on Moses. He shares it with them and they help lead the nation, some two million people. And as we sit here this morning, like that nation, there are various groups. There are some of us cruising through life rather ignorant that anything is going on, part of the two million people. Others of us are having a difficult time, maybe complaining. Still others are stirring it up, creating, inciting these feelings. And there are others who are just prayerfully committed to following the Lord wherever 
he leads. Some people need to be hugged and comforted, told that it's going to be okay. God is still God. And at the end of the day, that will never change. Others of us are wandering and need a course correction, need to hear the voice of our good shepherd. John 10 tells us, Jesus says, my sheep know my voice and they follow me. Some need to listen to the voice of the good shepherd in his word. And recommit, resubmit ourselves to what God has said. Others of us, though, need to be confronted by the word of God and the truth that God has laid before us. See, Joshua records the entrance of God's people into the promised land. It is a moment of triumph as a promise that God had made some five to six hundred years before to Abraham was finally coming to pass. God had promised Abraham a people and a land and it was finally here. Joshua tells the story of God's people conquering the land and then possessing the land, retaining it for themselves. The day has come. So Joshua is a record of victory, a record of an inheritance received. Yet even as God's people take the land, there is a sense that there must be more. You see, Joshua starts with a funeral and then ends with two more funerals, and really a third if you count the reburial of Joseph. Look down in your copy of God's Word, if you will, at Joshua 1, verse 1, the opening words of this book, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. After this harrowing journey through the wilderness, 40 years of wandering, the people are about to enter the land. It is a moment of crisis, the death of a leader. The choice of a new leader and a crucial question, will God's people follow this new leader? Exodus 32 to 34, after God's giving of the law, God's people rebelled in the wilderness, constructed an idol. God, a holy God, wanted to wipe out his people. Yet standing between the judgment, the righteous judgment of God and his people was one mediator, Moses. Moses stood between the people and the Lord. He used his street cred to negotiate their survival. Exodus 33. Moses pleads with the Lord, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And Deuteronomy 34, verses 10 through 12, tell us, about the greatness of Moses. There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Moses led the people out. But then Moses died. That's how Joshua begins. So flip from Joshua 1 now to the very end of the book, Joshua chapter 24. We're going to look here in verse 29. First verse of Joshua, Moses dies. Joshua 24, 29, after these things. 
Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died. Moses, dead. His successor, dead. And now verse 33, Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died. The priestly leader of Israel is dead. When I was in high school, our ensemble sang a choral setting of a poem by Robert Frost. Two roads diverged in the yellow wood. One of his most famous. This traveler, sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Two roads diverged in the wood and I... I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. The traveler (coughs) stood at a crossroads. And as the way the poem goes, it's almost as if he could take either road. Now, we've been in Galatians for a few months, but this morning, by now you know, we're doing something a little bit different. Because we are at a crossroads as a church. Will Ashley River be a church submitted to the authority of the word of God and the supremacy of Christ in all things? Will we be led by God's spirit, submitted to God-ordained leadership, consumed with our mission rather than our rights? And what we will see in the word this morning is that God calls us to submit to the authority of the word and the supremacy of Christ in all things. Now at this point, some of us are like, What crossroads? Because you're blissfully unaware of this larger conversation. But like the people of Israel, we have entered the land. We have sought to renew our commitment to Christ and his gospel. Holding the gospel high, keeping it at the center of all that we do. Like the Israelites, there's a constant temptation to turn back. Or as Hebrews 12 puts it, Instead of laying aside the weights in the sin, picking up the weights in the sin and carrying it with us as we go. It is time, brothers and sisters, to put this old way of life to death. We have a church meeting after this service where we will address the central question that faces every church. Will we be a church ordered by the word of God or by our own desires? Will we be submitted to the authority and the sufficiency of the word of God in all things? Look for a moment, flip a page or two back in your Bible to Numbers chapter 20, or, uh, sorry, Joshua chapter 21, Joshua 21 verse 43. Joshua 21, 43, thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. They took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. What an amazing testimony to the faithfulness of God. Not a single word had failed. Not one. And we sit here today as recipients to much greater promises than God had made to these people. 
Christ and his gospel. They are ours. God has been bringing his redemptive plan to pass, Ephesians 1 tells us, since before the foundation of the world. And we sit here today because God always, always, always does what God says he will do. There's not a single exception to this rule. Yet in Joshua 24, a choice again faces God's people. Before Joshua dies, he calls the people together three times in chapter 22, chapter 23, and chapter 24, and each time he addresses them. His final words to God's people. You see, Joshua 21, right before these three last messages, focuses on the faithfulness of God. God has done what God said he would do. Not one word has failed. And now the question confronts God's people. Will you respond in faith to God's faithfulness? Let's read Joshua 24, the first 13 verses. Joshua 24.1, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. He summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of the people. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, rose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Baor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. The first thing that Joshua does is remind God's people what God has done, remembering the works of the Lord. In 13 verses, he reminds them, you didn't get here on your own. God put you here. Verse 1, I took your father Abraham. Verse 3, I gave him Isaac. Verse 4, I gave Jacob and Esau. Verse 4, I gave Esau. 
Verse 5, I sent Moses and Aaron. Verse 5, I plagued Egypt. I brought you out. Verse 6, I brought your fathers. Verse 7, what I did in Egypt. Verse 8, I destroyed the Amorites. Verse 10, I delivered you. Verse 11, I gave the peoples into your hand. Verse 12, I drove the people out before you. Verse 13, I gave you a land. But wait, didn't the people have anything to do with this? I mean, weren't they at Jericho? I mean, weren't they at Ai when they failed and then God picked them up? What about their blood, sweat, and tears? What about their lives? Well, in case this is unclear, verse 12, it was not by your sword or by your bow. Verse 13, you live on land which you did not labor, cities that you didn't build. Verse 13, you eat fruit and olive orchards that you didn't plant. God isn't saying that people have nothing to do with this. However, he is saying what David writes in Psalm 145, verse 16. You, God, open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. He's saying the same thing that James says in James 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, with not from whom there's not even a shadow due to change. God has always been the giver of good gifts, and God will keep giving good gifts. So let's pause for a moment and think about what this means for us. Everything we have today came from God. Everything. All this... It ain't ours. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's God's. We're just stewards. We're not owners. Now, some of you might be sitting here and saying, well, that's real easy for you to say because you showed up in 2018. Fair. But none of y'all showed up before 1900 years after Jesus was here. I mean, even the very first members, one of whom, thank God, is sitting back here again this morning. We stand on the shoulders of work God has been doing without us for millennia. Brothers and sisters, God did his work before us, and he will do it after us. And he can do it without us. We are recipients of gifts we didn't earn. But isn't that how God works? He showers grace on people who don't deserve it, who didn't earn it. And isn't that how we work? We forget the works of God. I mean, Joshua reminds these people of the primary redemptive event in the Old Covenant, the Exodus. God delivers two million people in a blink from slavery and leads them to the promised land. But we sit here today as heirs of much greater promises. The primary redemptive event in history makes that event pale in comparison to the eternal Son of God becoming a human being to deliver untold billions from slavery to sin and death, delivering us from the judgment of God against our sin. Here's the thing about salvation. If you haven't placed your faith in Christ, it's something you can't earn. 
And if you have, it's something you didn't earn. The one thing that makes us all equal is we don't deserve God's grace. That's why we say the ground at the foot of that cross is equal. We all come, we don't deserve it, and none of us can earn it. So the key to anchoring ourselves in this gospel is remembering what God has done, not us. And as we do that, we recommit ourselves to white-hot spiritual devotion fueled by the grace of God. Let's pick up Joshua's words in verse 14. Joshua tells them all this story, and then in verse 14 he picks up and he says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But... As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. And who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went. And among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drew about before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. What a moment. Joshua really seems to miss the boat here because Joshua says to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God, a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you. After having done your good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Well, after a brief review of history, Joshua calls the people to action in verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. But I got to say, this conversation moves like a conversation with a salesman who's not very good at his job. Joshua calls the people to commitment, verses 14 and 15, and the people say, we're in. And Joshua says, hold on. I don't think you can do this, verses 19 and 20. The people double down, verse 21, we're in. Verses 22 and 23, Joshua again calls them to commitment. 
Verse 24, the people say, for a third time, we're in. It's as though Joshua is calling them to follow the Lord and at the same time cautioning them against what this means for them. Cautioning them against assuming it's easy. It's as easy as saying it, speaking the words, easily said, more difficultly done. Because the first step in this spiritual renewal is to fear God. Fear God. Verse 14, now therefore, Joshua says, <coughs> fear the Lord. You see, the fear of God is rooted in knowing who God is. Christian God is the most beautiful combination of greatness and closeness. Jake referenced this a little while ago. John 1.14 tells us the word became flesh. Dwelt among us, walked and talked and breathed and ate like we do. But John 1 also tells us that he is the one who is eternal and created all things. Calls us to love God with all our heart. But we cannot rightly love God if we don't properly fear God. Proverbs 1.7 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Joshua 24.19 tells us God is a holy God, a jealous God. To be holy is to be set apart. God's holiness is his set-apartness, his uniqueness, his otherness. He's not like other beings. And his holiness permeates every aspect of his being. His love is a holy love. His grace, a holy grace. His mercy, a holy mercy. His holiness means that God and God alone is worthy of our worship. And God knows this. He will brook no rival. The Lord our God is a jealous God. Now when jealousy shows up in our lives, it normally shows up like this. Why did she get invited and I didn't? It's a sinful kind of jealousy. But there is another kind of jealousy. It's a holy jealousy for people we love. So, if I were to see my wife being taken advantage of, or preyed upon, or attacked, there's a holy jealousy that should rise up in the heart of any faithful husband. For any parent to see their children under threat, there's a holy jealousy that arises in us for the sake of those we love. And God has a holy jealousy for his name. There is one being in the universe worthy of utter and total devotion. And the news flash for all of us is it ain't us, it's God. The holy triune God. The one who spoke and worlds came to be. The one who revealed himself to us in his word. The one who descended from on high and walked and talked like we walk and talk. The one who looked at rebels running from his will and set his affection on us and said, I love you even though we don't deserve his love. 
This God is worthy of utter, total, complete devotion, and no other being is. Not only should God be jealous for his love, we should be jealous for it too. Our God is a holy God. And so the Lord says, you must put away other gods. Verse 14, put away the gods that your fathers served. See, following Christ has always been about repentance and faith. Faith, fearing the Lord, repentance, turning from other gods. It's been a number of years ago now, but my wife and I had this conversation pretty early on in our dating relationship. Oh, not about turning from other gods, but about turning from other people. I wasn't dating anyone else. But pretty early on, we realized this is serious. And if we're going to be serious in our commitment, we have to be exclusive in our commitment. Turn from other relationships. A commitment to loving this way is a commitment to turn from other loves. And so I want to say, dear brothers and sisters, it is time to put away the gods our fathers served. My first year here, I was in a meeting when a member of our Constitution and Bylaws Committee held up a copy of the Constitution and Bylaws and said, this is our Bible. Brothers and sisters, that is idolatry. It's time to put away that God. We could more rightly say, this is our constitution, then that is our Bible. We have gotten all out of whack. When that can be said in a room full of people and business goes on as usual. That is godless, it is wicked, it is idolatry. People will die and go to hell because people believe that. That can't save anyone. We need people that are submitted to the lordship of Christ and the goodness and the authority of his word. And if I may, while we're messing, I'd like to submit to you that the problem starts in the very first line of our bylaws. The Ashley River Baptist Church is a sovereign and democratic Baptist church under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to start out by pointing out the paradox that's here. I've done a good bit of reading on Baptist polity actually a fair amount. And so I know that sometimes the word sovereign is used to describe the right of a church to self-govern. Words like autonomous and self-governing are also used to describe this as part of Baptist polity. But a lot of churches don't choose the word sovereign. 
to describe their rights. Because while sovereign can communicate the idea that churches are self-governing, it also is more often used to describe the idea that we're in charge. That no one has the right to tell us what to do. Why is it that there are members of Ashley River Baptist Church that get nervous at any mention of the sovereignty of God. But don't roll over that we have declared ourselves sovereign. Committed to our own sovereignty. We need to turn from this God. We need to turn from belief in our own sovereignty to a commitment to the absolute sovereignty of Jesus Christ over this church. We need to lean into under the lordship of Jesus Christ and away from sovereign Baptist church. It is time to put this God away. It is time to be a biblically ordered church submitted to the authority and sufficiency of God's word in all things for our worship, for our discipleship, for our mission, and for our governance. We're next called to serve the Lord. Verse 14 says to serve the Lord in sincerity and faithfulness. One irony of this passage is that Joshua's famous call to the people in verse 14, choose whom you will serve, is not a choice between false gods and the true God. Look again at verse 15. Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve, whether it's the old gods or the new gods. This isn't a question of are there gods among you because he says, get rid of them. There are gods there. It's pointing out that the people haven't been choosing between true worship and false worship. They've been choosing between versions of false worship. So in contrast to that, Joshua famously closes verse 15. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now what about the people? Verse 18. We also will serve the Lord. Joshua's like, I'm all in. People are like, us too, us too. Joshua's response is remarkable. You're not able to serve the Lord, for he's a holy, jealous God. He is not much of a salesman. This is not a moment for half-hearted commitment. If Israel decides to follow the Lord and then turns from that path, what will happen? Verse 20, the Lord will turn and do you harm, consume you. (laughs) One writer on this passage put it this way, Yahweh is not a soft, cuddly Santa in the sky who drools over easy decisions during invitation hymns. Jesus does the same thing in the Gospels. You remember Luke 14? Crowds are following Jesus. We're in, we're in. Jesus speaks these words. Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You see, it's a lot easier thing to sing I surrender all than to actually surrender 
off. We will serve the Lord if you're not able to serve the Lord. This, brothers and sisters, is why we need Jesus. An outward form of religion isn't enough. Programs are never enough. We're not able to do the very things that we should do. Yet in our place stands Jesus. Jesus, the righteous one. Jesus, the holy one. Jesus, the loving one. Our perfect older brother. Jesus, the perfect suffering servant who always perfectly served the Father. The only way to keep from being consumed by the holiness of God is to turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Oh, friend, some of us have been walking with Jesus for decades, but never bowed the knee to him. Will you turn from your sin while it is today? Will you trust Christ? You see, we know this is true scripturally, but it's true culturally. I mean, have you noticed there aren't many casual Christians and they're diminishing by the year? Jesus said there are no half measures with following me. People used to walk away from church and say, well, I still walk with Jesus today. They don't even mess with that. Call themselves nuns. Nothing. I mean, that was from our parents. It's outdated. Pursue God. With your whole heart, your whole life. If you pursue him, you will never find yourself wanting. He is the satisfier of our every need. The greatest need in our world today is that people are dying and going to a Christless eternity. There is a mission outside our doors. There is a mission inside these doors. And we can tell these people going to hell that they don't have to. They can run to Christ, receive him by faith. And this covenant renewal leads to the sobering aftermath of this moment. Look now in verse 29. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died. Judges 1, if you turn over a page in your Bible, begins after the death of Joshua. And the period of Judges is a period of lawlessness and sin. Judges is a cycle over and over, rebellion, Judgment, repentance, deliverance. And yet Judges ends this way in Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Turns out Joshua was right. The people could not and did not serve the Lord. In spite of these promising beginnings, in spite of these bold words, the people turned from their covenant commitments and wandered from the Lord. But in the midst of all this spiritual decline, there is a jewel that shines so bright in the days of darkness. 
the book of Ruth, there is enduring hope. God's grace pursues wandering sinners. Ruth 1 verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine. It sounds dark. You see, Ruth tells the story of a Moabite woman named Ruth who lost her family and yet faithfully held in love to her Jewish mother-in-law. And then meets Boaz, a faithful Jewish man who redeems both Ruth and Naomi from their desperate situation. This is in the days of the judges. But Ruth ends on a note of bright hope. Boaz and Ruth have a son. His name is Obed. Obed has a son. His name is Jesse. Jesse has a son. His name, David. Yes, that David. And Matthew's gospel picks up this very thread running through the Bible. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Out of this darkness, light. The story of redemption is a story of God's grace pursuing wandering, rebellious sheep. Ultimately, the story of the Bible is a story of grace. Not a story of God's rescuing people who would have figured it out for themselves. The hope for any sinner lies in Christ. And the hope for any church full of sinful people lies in Christ. But the only way there is through repentance and faith. That's true for sinners who need reconciliation. And it's true for churches in need of change. Repentance and faith in Christ. God decreed salvation before the foundation of the world. And yet, trusting Jesus is always presented to responsible people to accept or reject the gospel. Joshua called the people to choose. We're going to do the same thing today. The traditionalists in Joshua's day, they probably lean toward those old school Mesopotamian gods. The progressive, they like the gods of the land, the gods of the Amorites. But both had in common they, that they rejected the true God and his revelation. To reject what God has said in favor of what we're comfortable with is to return to the gods of our fathers. Uh, not long ago, I had a call from a pastor friend, a church, looking for some pulpit supply. We were talking about the church, church I'm familiar with, many of you would be as well. I said, are they in a position to hire a pastor? And this brother said about this church, it's not really a matter of money. You see, the members of this church decided several years ago they would rather die than change. And they will. They creep closer by the month. Brothers and sisters, God is God or he's not. This is God's word or it's not. God has the right to tell us how to order our lives in our church or he doesn't. 
For two generations, this has been an open question for some members of Ashley River Baptist Church. That day has passed. Joshua 24, verse 25. Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them. Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone, and he set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. Brothers and sisters, we are calling you today to choose. To set up a stone of witness, if you will. The most important question before us as a church isn't the question of a person or a program. It's the question of what kind of church we will be. Will we be a church where members use Sunday school not to study the word of God, but to gossip and complain? Will we be a church that responds to information, some true, some false, by gossiping and being divisive? Will we be a church that members use their phones to take calls to encourage votes of no confidence or hold secret meetings? Because that's not only the history, it's the present reality of our church. including some Sunday school classes that ironically began meeting last Sunday. Remember that meeting a month ago? We said, hey, this happens in Sunday school classes, and we said, oh, no, it doesn't. It does. Happened last week. God can do this with or without us. God can do this with or without me. It is my prayer for our church that our church will be a culture of courageous grace where we humbly seek the Lord together where we strive as best we can as broken people to follow spirit-filled leadership and we get consumed with making disciples for Christ instead of our minutia and pet causes the choice is before us We know the kind of church God is calling us to be. And today, let's declare with this Joshua, as for Ashley River Baptist Church, we're all in. We will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Let's search our hearts. It's time to choose.